morning again. Now, starting the second half of Revelation, so the chapter, it's it's 22 long, 22 chapter long book. It's the second half, starting chapter 12 today. It's really important to me that um, you all understand what's going on. It's kind of a big deal. Um, And I want to take responsibility for being clear. Uh, At the same time, you need to take some responsibility for being an active Learner, I realize Revelation is not an easy book. Uh, we do have Q&A time afterward, question and answer time. But I also know many of you are a little bit hesitant to ask questions publicly, and I, I get that. I just kind of feel a little bit nervous about asking a question, whether or not that you're going to feel like ridiculed or something. Keep in mind, you can, even if you're here, go to branchofhope.org on your phone and ask a question online if you don't want to get up and ask the question. And I really encourage you to ask those questions. And let me tell you why, at least from my perspective, I enjoy our time of question and answer. I enjoy our time of question and answer because it reveals to me what you do or do not know. It helps me understand what is clear and not clear so I can maybe do a better job at addressing it at another time. So if things are unclear to you, Let me know, and one of the best times for you to do that is during our time of question and answer. Now, before I read the text today, which is Revelation 12, 1 through 6, let me just say something about this whole idea of Revelation and this issue of eschatology, you know, the study of end times or last times, because I'm here to tell you that the Revelation is not merely, or even, I would argue, primarily about the end of the world. I would argue that the Revelation is primarily about the end of the Old Covenant and the beginning of the New Covenant. It is primarily about moving from B.C. to A.D. It's primarily about God making a promise and keeping a promise that He will preserve His church and that we are here today as a result of God keeping that promise. The early church had many detractors and oppressors, and it seemed like they might be snuffed out. And what we see in Revelation is Jesus, through John, through the angel, informing the church, churches that they will not be snuffed out, and therefore they need to remain faithful. They need to remain churches. Those seven churches in particular needed to stay the course, finish the race, and overcome. And that's what Revelation is primarily about. So in that respect, the message isn't just for them, and it's not just for the last generation. It's for us. It's the, this continuing persevering of the saints of Christ, that we might remain the church, the church that has been called to overtake the gates of darkness, the gates of hell, the gates of Hades. And so it's very much a book that applies, it's not just a book to observe and kind of be sensationalized, but a book that's to be studied and applied and appreciated in terms of what God is doing in our lives. All right, so we're going to take a look here at a a, a turn here in Revelation that is um, quite fascinating. I mean, what we're going to read here, you might initially, and I hope I'll make it clear to you, but you might initially go, wow, these are some wild, wild words that we're going to read, these six verses. Revelation 12, 1 through 6, hear now the word of God. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. 
Then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would prepare our hearts to understand the meaning of these uh, symbols, of this language. What does it mean, Father? Who is this woman? Who is this fiery red dragon? What does this mean to us? We do pray, Father, that all of this would become clear as we examine this text that your name might be glorified and that your people might know the peace and the security of your love, your grace, your protection, and your mercy. So grant us, Father, to understand these wonderful things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start off by digressing. I'd like to say I think it would do us well before we post anything on our pages, before we put any sign on our front yard in terms of these movements that are all afoot, these movements designed to to benefit those who are marginalized in our culture, those who are disenfranchised. I think it would do us well before we covenant ourselves and associate ourselves with these organizations to familiarize ourselves with the manifestos of these organizations. Before you go, I'm going, to put, I'm, going to, I'm going to get on board with this group. Go to their webpage and read what they say about themselves. Look at what their statement of faith actually is. Know what you're getting involved in. You need to recognize that the most evil associations in history have been fueled by convincing the masses that their best interests, that our best interests are served by not only yielding to, but promoting the well-meaning parties and institutions of the day. Get, Get on board with us. We're here to help. Post our sign. Let me tell you, friends, they will ask you to fish. Fish with us. And the next thing you know, you're the bait in a pool full of sharks. You need to be wise in terms of who you're involving yourself with. Whether it's racial injustice, whether it's class warfare, feminism, environmentalism, animal rights, whatever the issue is, if you take the time to examine organizations using these types of concerns, which they should be concerns, but using these types of concerns to springboard themselves into prominence, you're going to find some recurring themes. We should be 
aware of these themes. They, they come up throughout the course of history. Let me give you uh, uh, some examples of what these themes are of these organizations that want to help us. One of the things, and you'll see they're unabashed at this, they, they don't hide it. One of the things you'll see is the deplatforming of the nuclear family. That needs to be done away with. This idea of mom and dad and junior and sis, that's destructive. We need to get rid of that. It takes a village, not mom and dad. It takes a culture. Another thing we'll see are on-hands, highly regulated political collectives telling you what you can and cannot do. I mean, I just was watching something this last week. It was astonishing. This guy, who's part of one of these organizations, was making an argument that a person, because some, some lady had called in, and she says, it's just so weird. I have this little business where I'm braiding my friend's hair, and the government has come in, and they are trying to regulate me braiding my friend's hair. And this lawyer was making an argument that you shouldn't be able to braid your friend's hair without government intervention. They need to regulate the chemicals that you're using. Who knows what they mean? I'm like, are you kidding me? You're telling me that I can't braid somebody's hair without Uncle Sam somehow getting involved. But that's a recurring theme. But we need the government. We need the nanny to watch over us. Another thing that we see, another recurring theme, is the destabilizing, violently if necessary, of anything that would create class distinctions. Now, at first, we might go, yeah, okay, I get that, because historically, this was aimed at royal blood. I mean, many of you are probably aware in history what has happened, you know, in you know, the, this, these, these events that have taken place, whether it was in France or whether it was in Russia, where the royalty found the disfavor of the people and the, the violence that took place. But... It's not just the royal blood. What we also have is um, distinctions based upon success in business, the vilification of people who are successful at work, that they have now become, and this is another theme, they become the oppressors. And then you create this oppressor-oppressed distinction that takes place. This isn't anything new. This is something that people have tried to establish in order to get you to feel that you're entitled to something that maybe you didn't earn because somebody else is being successful. Another recurring theme is the extraction of religion from the corporate conscience. We need to get rid of religion. It is the opiate of the masses. Religion, Mao said, the religion is poison. If it wasn't so sad, it would be humorous that he's saying religion is poison as a billion people knelt before him. You just don't like a religion that doesn't acknowledge that you are the ultimate source of people's faith and conviction. And finally, and my digression will end here, what you'll see as a recurring theme is the establishment of matter, M-A-T-T-E-R, as the basic building block of society. Matter. What do I mean by that? What do they mean by that? That is, things that are not immaterial don't exist. Things that are not... The only thing that exists comes from matter. You and I, we are matter in motion. You and I are molecules flying through space. 
If we want to go all the way back to the very beginning, there was an explosion. We're the end result of that explosion, and we're just going where that explosion is blowing us. That's why people argue that you're not held accountable for your actions because of your past. Because you're just going where the explosion has sent you. How can I be responsible if I'm the end result of an explosion? That makes no more sense than holding shrapnel responsible for where it lands when the hand grenade goes off. You don't blame the shrapnel. It just goes where it goes. And, there, and that's the establishment that they're seeking to bring. That we are just matter. And that which is immaterial doesn't exist. Some of you might have listened to the great debate between Dr. Greg Bonson and Dr. Gordon Stein It's a wonderful debate. If you haven't listened to it, you should. Stein is arguing, Stein the atheist is arguing what I just said, that everything is matter. Everything is physical. There is no immaterial. And in his cross-examination of Dr. Bonson, he said, can you give me one example of that which is immaterial? And Bonson said, the laws of logic. Well, the debate was all but over. Because for the rest of the debate, every time Stein tried to make an argument using sound reason, he was stepping on his own toes. And he knew it and everybody else knew it. There was this thing called logic that is immaterial. And we all know that to be the case. Well, why am I starting with this? I am starting with this because if there was ever a passage in Scripture which taught the presence and the necessity of the immaterial, it's here. You know, people, they will balk and they will mock at the notion of a devil. I mean, be honest, sometimes you feel almost embarrassed talking about a devil. And, and in, historically, people have tried to fuel the fire of that mockery by, you know, putting devil in a, the devil in a red suit with a tail and a triton and all this stuff. So we try to make it silly, that this idea of a devil, who, by the way, is a prominent player in this chapter, is something that is archaic. Uh, the, the erudite thinker doesn't believe in a devil. Yet at the same time, even though people don't believe in a the devil, they do, they do believe in evil. Well, evil is not something you can weigh. Evil is not something you can paint. By the way, evil is not impersonal. Evil is very personal. And I, I say that because you have to recognize that if something's personal, it comes from a person. All this to say that evil does exist. It's immaterial, though it manifests itself in a very material way, right? You have an evil thought, that's immaterial. Then you have an evil deed, that's material. And it comes from somewhere. Evil comes from somewhere. Or let me put it this way. It comes from someone. Now you can call the father of evil something other than the devil if it makes you uncomfortable to use the word the devil. But friends, changing the name does not change the reality. Jesus called him the devil, the father of of lies. Now, we're about to read some pretty fantastic things in this chapter. This chapter 
is going to explain the nature of the great victories that we see in chapters 4 through 11. In chapters 4 through 11, we saw some amazing things that the church needed to know in terms of their preservation. At the end of chapter 11, they might ask the question, how could these things be? How is it that this could take place? Chapter 12 is explaining how these things can be. It also will explain not only how those things can be, but chapter 12 will shoot us off into recognizing that same protection for the future. I want to say one more thing before we dig in. What I I found also very remarkable about this is we're talking about these amazingly material, cosmic, celestial things that are taking place. We won't, get it to, we won't get into it today, but, you know, Michael and his angels doing battle and all this stuff happening, as it were, you know, in this kind of invisible realm. The one thing, though, that strikes me, and I think it should strike you, is the utilization of the prayers of the saints in all of this. That picture, you know, where they're saying, how long, O Lord? And he's saying, not long, you know, in, the, in chapter 6, when the, the saints are under the altar are praying. And then we realize that those prayers are brought up as an aroma to God, and then they're put in a center, and then they're crashed upon the earth. So in all of these things that we're observing taking place, recognize this, that God is utilizing your prayers as part of what He is doing. He's allowing us to be involved through our prayers in the great preservation of His church, of His body. Friends, I I really do pray that our engagement in chapter 12, and we'll probably be about three weeks in chapter 12, would not only be clear and not only helpful to our overall understanding of Revelation, but above all that, I do pray that it would be ministerial. I do pray that as we look at this, and, you know, we talk about the person and work of Christ who needs to be the central focus of every sermon, that it would instill in you and in me this great sense of joy, this great true spiritual prosperity, and inform us in terms of our engagement in this world. Let's look at one and two. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon, under her feet, and on her head, a garland of twelve stars. Then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. I call this the other side of Christmas. Now, this reference to this woman, right, with the sun and moon and stars, that shouldn't be that difficult. It is almost a direct reference to Genesis 37. Remember Joseph? Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat. And he had this dream, right? And the dream had 11 stars. Of course, he would be the 12th. That, it's almost exactly taken from that. And in that context, those 12 stars, that woman is Old Testament Israel. The people of God. So these are the people of God. They are God's people from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth. And then the 12 sons. We learn that what we have is the 12 tribes of Israel. And it would be through those 
12 tribes, it would be through Israel that who would come? The Messiah. Israel was the one, we read in Romans 9, 5, from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. So when we look at Revelation 12, it seems like it should be pretty clear. This woman is Israel, and she's about to give birth. Labor, pain, torment. Israel, keep in mind, at the time of Christ, they were a dominated people. They were an enslaved people. And we talk about the events surrounding the birth of Christ. You know, we talk about the census, right? No room in the inn. You know, she's with child and they're having to travel. We tend to, you know, uh, turn that into something very cute and sweet. But friends, there was nothing regal about the birth of Christ. I mean, when the wise men came, they were like, where is he? We, We heard a king. You know, it wasn't like, you know, Lion King where he's on the top of the mountain holding him up and all the animals are... It's like, where is this king? The birth of Christ was anything but the provincial, bucolic, manger scene that we put on our lawns during Christmas. Now, I don't want to overstate it. You want to to sing Silent Night? Fine. But what we're going to learn here is that while you're singing Silent Night and the baby in the crib making no crying, not crying, or whatever that song says... There are demons in the room. There is a darkness associated with the birth of Christ that this chapter is revealing to us. The the painting, friends, of verse 2 is nightmarish. The woman is going to cry out, which means literally to shout. Now, some people think that the woman here is Mary. Well, obviously, Mary's the one who physically gave birth, but I would, again, I think that the woman with the 12 stars and the moon is Israel in general. And you would think, those of you who have had children, that merely saying labor would be painful enough. Just mention that it's labor. But he doesn't. He goes beyond the labor, and he adds... Pain seems a little redundant, right? But that word pain literally means to torment. There's there's something beyond the normal pain of labor that's being described here in verse 2. Now let's keep this in mind. That chapter 12 is answering the questions of how Can these things be? You've made some wonderful, Lord, you've made some wonderful promises. But how how did this happen? What needed to take place in order for the benefits that we are receiving to actually happen? How can it be that God will preserve and protect his people? What needed to happen in order for that to take place? How can it be that the evil detractors and the oppressors of all of that which is good and right and true will be vanquished. How how are they vanquished? How is evil overcome? How is it, if I could put it this way, 
that Christ is the only one worthy to open the scroll. Remember, we go back there a little bit, and John is like, they're weeping because they didn't find anybody worthy to open the scroll. The scroll would be the redemptive history that was about to take place. You know, this idea that the church is going to be snuffed out, but we need somebody to open this scroll of redemption, and there's only one worthy, and it's the Lamb. But here we're kind of told in more detail what actually would take place. What we need to realize, friends, is that our deliverance, our protection, our preservation has come with a price. We often think of the pain and the payment of the cross. And well, we should. But the passion of the Christ, the humiliation of Christ, began long before the cross. Like a... Like a tormented gazelle giving birth in the midst of a pride of lions. That's the picture given here. Let's read on verses 3 and 4. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Again, during Christmas, we tend to think of the birth of Christ. We think of the shepherds, right? And the manger, the wise men. What seldom makes it on the Christmas card is the demonic reception of death that awaited the baby. That great fiery red dragon, we learn in verse 9, is the devil and Satan. Just two titles, the devil meaning the accuser and Satan meaning the enemy, the adversary. The picture, get the picture. I mean, I don't want to soft pedal this, right? I know, I mean, this, is a, this is a rough passage. Is waiting to do what? Devour the child. As soon as it was born. I mean, it, friends, it is a gruesome picture. And I, I don't want to belittle it. I don't want to go, well, you know, we've got to soft pedal this. It is what it is. I don't know how, but somehow, you know, I barely learned how to do the Facebook. Facebook, not the Facebook. <laughs> and then I got on Instagram, which I can't really figure out. But somehow... Whatever my algorithm is, they've decided that I really want to see animals <laughs> killing other animals. I, I don't know what, how, I got, I, how I got on there. They're like, oh, this guy, he's a, he wants to see the animal kill the other animal. And I'm like, well, it is kind of interesting, you know, the wild and stuff. <laughs> but so, sometimes, and it, the, the ghastlier the better, right? I mean, sometimes it's... You know, I mean, one that popped into my head was this, you know, this beautiful giraffe who's having a baby. I don't really enjoy watching animal birth, but whatever. You know, it's having the baby. And the baby, like, immediately falls right into the mouth of a tiger. Like, the tiger is just waiting for the baby. I mean, it's really sad, and, and it's really gruesome, and it's, just, it's part of what it is. But that's what's going on here. You've got the, the picture being drawn here is she's about to give birth. 
And this great red fiery dragon is waiting to devour the baby the moment that it actually is born. Now we'll get more into what that actually was in terms of its material reality in just a second. But a little bit more about this this fiery red dragon, because there's a description given, right? Seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems. What's all that? Well, the seven heads gives us the message that, you guys are familiar with the hydra, you know, it was like a mythological creature where if you cut the head off, two more grew. Like, you you couldn't kill it. That's the image here with the seven heads. The the image is, you can cut off one head, but there's another one that's going to replace it. It's this idea of hard to kill. The, 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 the ten horns is the idea of powerful. Hard to kill, powerful, and the seven diadems. Now, a diadem is a crown, but there's a couple of different types of crowns in the Bible. There's a Stephanos crown. It's the kind of crown that you get when you win something, right? You're awarded and they give you a crown. That's not this crown. The diadem is a crown that means royal or imperial dignity. It's the kind of crown a king wears. In other words, it's a legitimate office. He's got a legitimate office. Now, let me just say this. To be sure, and we've we've kind of wrestled this out in the last few years with all the COVID stuff and you know, mandates and all this, to be sure, we, as Christians, are to harbor a basic deferential disposition to those who are in authority. We are not to be unnecessarily rebellious. You know, a police officer pulls you over, be respectful. Acknowledge the authority that he has, or she has, or whatever. Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, teaches much, you know, to the point of honor the king. Even when the king at the time was very likely Nero, who was one of the most evil people who ever lived. At the same time, we need to recognize this. Leaders can be demonically evil. And there are limits both to their jurisdiction and their authority. We're a, I'm an elder, board of elders. According to Hebrews 13, 17, and many other passages in the New Testament, our elders are authority figures. Our elder board is an authority figure. And if you remember in this church, you made a vow to submit to the elders if you're found wanting in doctrine or in life. You made that vow. You made that promise before man and God. But if we as an elder board walk into your house and start telling you what to eat for breakfast, what car to buy, where to go to school, you're fine to ignore us. It's not our jurisdiction to tell you these things. It's life and doctrine. If you start embracing heresy or you start walking a road of immorality, then the the elders are responsible to address that. But there's a limit to our jurisdiction and there's a limit to our authority. Now, what happened? What What was the material thing that took place that these verses are talking about? The the immaterial extended itself into the material world. I think it should be obvious 
by pointing to the physical birth of Christ. What this is talking about is the birth of Christ. And the material crown would be who? Anybody want to hazard a guess? King Herod. He had a crown. Now, let's just go back to this idea of recognizing the work of the devil in Herod, who had a legitimate position of authority. But, But Joseph and Mary, and along with them Jesus, and the wise men, and all of these people kind of interacting with Herod, well, they did not submit to the beckoning of Herod, did they? Herod wanted this to happen, and they were like, well, it's not going to happen. There was a place for them to say, you know what, I know you have a legitimate authority, and I don't want to be disrespectful, but we're going to Egypt. Now, you might say something like, well, yeah, but if, but if an angel appeared to me and warned me and told me to go to Egypt, I would, but that's not happening to me. But even if it's just providential, if providentially, just in the course of observable history, it is made known to you that a certain thing is going to happen that involves a legitimate authority figure, you may need to go to Egypt. And by the way, Egypt is not Idaho or Texas. Let me just add to this because we don't want to ignore it. It's in the text. We have this idea of the devil dragging a third of the stars of the heaven, right? That picture. And we'll get to this. What, what you, many of you have probably never been taught, even by me, is how do we deal with the fact that Jesus, and we'll see this in the Gospels, is talking about the devil being thrown out of heaven. Like, I saw the devil fall like lightning. What, what do we do with that? And we're not going to get to that today, but I think that's something that you've probably read, and you're like, what does that even mean, that the devil is being thrown out? You know, the context, all right, the the apostles are casting out demons, they go back to Jesus, and they're like, I can't believe it, even the demons submit to us, and Jesus says, well, I saw Satan cast out of heaven like lightning. That's 2,000 years ago. This is not the fall of angels, right, that happened prior to Adam and Eve, And it's not the future. But right now, let's just keep this in mind. You've got this image of the devil using, and this is all symbolic language, right? His tail, and he drags a third of the angels, which are very likely just demonic beings, to earth. What I think that needs to do is needs to heighten the awareness that we have that Christ would contend from his cradle to his grave with a blitzkrieg of darkness. Right? I mean, Herod is clearly here being moved by Satan to devour the child. Last week, Grant was talking about the first sermon, right, Jesus gave the Isaiah scroll and you know, and they're all in the synagogue and they're doing fine and for some reason, what happens? All of a sudden, they want to throw him off a cliff. I know sometimes you're not happy with me, but thank you that you've never tried to throw me off the pier. I think it goes beyond just the sinful human nature. You know, Paul says, don't give the devil a foothold. Don't give the devil a place. It's almost like our sinful nature will bring us thus far. But the moment we give in to our sinful nature, we basically said the devil 
come on in. And we've got an evil that goes beyond just the evil of the human nature. It goes into the evil of the darkness of the devil himself. We need to realize, even at the very end, Satan entered Judas to betray Jesus. This was an enterprise of darkness, of the devil, from, from, from birth to death. This fiery red dragon seemed to create an insurmountable assault against this single man, this person, Jesus, truly man. And the devil utilized kings and priests and friends and foes and families and governments. There, you ever wonder why, there, well, again, we can't get into this today, we'll get into it though, why there were so many demon-possessed people during the time of Christ? There was, you're talking about a darkness in the land that goes beyond the normal darkness that we see in human societies. I mean, it goes beyond just sinful nature. We've seen it a couple of times already in Revelation. The churches, the synagogues, right, where Jesus taught. It was in the synagogue, right, Grant, that he opened that Isaiah scroll. What what were those synagogues called once we get into Revelation? Synagogues of Satan. They weren't synagogues of fallen sinful man. They were synagogues of Satan. There was a demonic presence that Jesus had to contend with that I think goes beyond our comprehension. And it all goes all the way to the cross, which would appear to be the biggest failure in human history. The death of the Savior, the death of the Messiah, except for verse 5. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. The brevity of that verse is shocking when you consider what it contains. I mean, it made me think of the Apostles' Creed, where just in a few words, right, you go from born of a virgin to ascended. I mean, it's almost like, well, wait a minute. It seems like there was a lot more in there. From his, it goes right from, the Apostles' Creed goes right from the birth of Christ to Pilate to the ascension, to, to obviously the resurrection and the ascension. We see that here. John is not rehearsing the entire work of redemption. He's born, and then he's at the right hand of the Father. I guess it could all be summarized this way. He was born under attack by the forces of evil, and he won. He's kind of gone now. He ascends. Now, you might look at that and you might think, I mean, if, you, if you're one of them, right, you might have felt a little deserted. I mean, I think when Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, he was probably addressing the fact that they might have felt that you're going to leave us as orphans. 
And, and what we also have to, what we have to realize is that he also said, it is better that I go. Because I'm going to send my spirit and I'm going to be with you in a way that really goes beyond my physical presence. And you're going to think that your life, which is so littered and peppered with difficulty, is a failure. But as we've said before, the Christian life is a string of victories disguised as failures. But there's emphasis in this verse. For some reason, John wants one Old Testament verse to kind of come to the fore. The one thing he says about the Christ was this child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Why is that? Why, if you're not going to say anything, if you're going to go right from, from the birth to the ascension, why is that the one thing you're going to say? There are a lot of other things you could have said about Christ, right? You could have said the one who went to the cross, the one who performed miracles, the one who raised the dead. The one, no, the one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. It's a reference to the second psalm. And in that psalm, the rulers and the kings of the earth are warned. They are called to be wise. lest they bear the wrath of the Son. Now, you know, that might sound very harsh, unless you are an underling of one of those rulers who are exercising their authority to oppress you and kill you and starve you. And what the church needed to know was, because that was the environment they were in, they were in a very hostile environment. Jesus had ascended, And what they needed to know was that their Savior, who is now at the right hand of God, governing all things, will not allow those oppressors to endure. Their days are coming to an end. The rulers of this world, both then and now, need to recognize that if they, as king, or president, or governor, or mayor, do not bow to the king of kings, their days are numbered. That's what needs to be understood. That's what the church needed to understand. Do you appreciate the authority given your Savior? You know, the Apostle Paul put it this way in Ephesians 1. He raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. You realize we live in an era where the predominant eschatological view does not believe that Jesus is currently King of kings and Lord of lords, and I can't tell you how destructive I think that is. It's almost like the scriptures go bend over backwards to reveal to us who is in fact on the throne. And yet over and over and over again, we're going to keep hearing that, well, the devil's in charge of this world. This world belongs to the devil. Let me tell you something. At the time of Christ, we do read that the whole world lay under the sway of the wicked one. That's why I would argue he was so intent on devouring the child because he knew that his dominion was threatened by this child and he wasn't going to have it. 
And what we're going to see in a minute is his failure now with the devouring of the child is going to be turned to the body of the child, which is the church, which is what I'm, I believe this chapter is trying to convey initially to those seven churches, but to us as well. But let me just say this. Maybe when I just read that, that verse, that passage about him having all power and authority above all principality in this age and the one to come, we need to realize this that we read that from the Apostle Paul as a prayer for us that we might know this. That's a prayer. Paul is saying, I am praying that you will get this. It is a prayer that we might know the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. That is the context of this prayer. He's not just saying it for us to go, wow, look. No, he's saying, look, he's there. But the prayer concludes with these words, and these are astonishing words in Ephesians 1, 21, 22, and 23. This is the same thought. He's carrying the same thought, and he put all things under his feet and did what? And gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all and all. You see, Christ, in his exalted estate, is said to be a gift to the church in that capacity. Scripture goes so far as to say that those who stay the course of faithfulness, those who persevere, share that very throne with him. Revelation 3.21. Well, how would the churches receiving this letter take such news? Their Savior is caught up to God, the right hand, but they, we, are still here. And unlike 21st century America, these churches were living in very hostile territory. Would God say, you know what? Best wishes. Hope it works out for you. Be strong. Fend for yourselves. See, what we shall see in this passage is that the devil, having failed to kill Christ, now will seek to kill the church. Then the woman, that's, remember, now, now this, we've got this woman who I would take at this point to be the faithful Israelite, the one who actually believes in Jesus. But you know that initially, Jesus, as a Jew, initially, primarily, chronologically, preached to who first? The Jews. And the, the, pretty much the entire New Testament is written by Jews. Luke maybe being the one exception. All right, so you've got the woman now, who's we're now moving into the New Covenant, and now the devil is kind of turning and going, well, Jesus has ascended, and he's turning and he's going, I'm coming after you. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now, in, in the weeks to come, we're going to dig into to this a little further. But let me just say this. You know, I don't want to get all seminary academic on you right here, okay? But I have to say this, and some of you are going to be like, some of you are going to go, wow, 
because you're like really into eschatology and stuff. Some of you will be like, I don't think so. And some of you will be like, I wish he would have bought his watch. <laughs> but that 1,000, that 260 days, which is other, in other places referred to as three and a half years or 42 months or times, times and a half a time and so forth, that, that three and a half year period over and against the popular view that most of your friends have, what they call the futurist view, is not addressing the events that will happen at the end of human history. That is not what those three and a half years are. That's, that's, they make the movies about that. Oh, the last three and a half years, the intense tribulation, end of the world, let me tell you, that is not what it is. Let me give you a couple of reasons why. First of all, it would make this entirely insignificant to the people receiving the letter. Well, and one of the principles when you read your Bible is, how would the ones receiving this letter have understood this? Now, now this is quiz time. There's an outline in Revelation, and it's found in chapter 1, verse 19. Anybody know what the outline is? You don't have to say it. John has given the outline where he said, write the things which you have seen, the things that are, and the things that will take place after this. Right? So you got three things. Things that he had already seen, things that were happening now, and then the things that are going to take place after this. Now, numerous times, as I've pointed out, Revelation tells us that these churches are going to be addressing that which will shortly take place. It's, that is said more than once. Now, the things that John had already seen, will that shortly take place? No, it's already happened. The things that are, the seven letters of seven churches, will that shortly take place? No. That's happening right then. Those are the things that are. So what's going to shortly take place? Roman numeral three which we're in right now. So the three and a half years, if you're the reader going, the, con- the, the context of John's letter is telling me about things that will shortly take place. And I would argue that this three and a half year period, at least for the readers, would, is something that was going to happen soon. Now let me get, see if I can be even more interesting. This, now this is going to be, now I expect, I expect you to email me questions during Q&A today. Because I, I just, I think, I think it's a strong refutation of the futurist view. I want to address the amillennial view. I know we have some amillennialists in the room, and they have this idealist view. And let me tell you why I think that's wrong here as well. The amillennialists, now again, okay, so those of you who I'm, I've lost, just take a break. I have to say this, though. The amillennialists, the reputable amillennialists, will say that this three-and-a-half-year period is the entire church age. From the, from, the, between the, from the first to second advent of Christ. The three-and-a-half years is the entire church age. Let me tell you why that doesn't work. One reason, and then we'll move on. Yeah, it doesn't work because it's not true. <laughs> Here's why. Because the amillennialist, similar to the postmillennialist, which is my position, believes that Revelation 20 contains a time text 
describing the entire church age. And anybody want to guess what that time text is, how long that is? A thousand years. So the same author in the same book, using the same apocalyptic literature, is using three and a half years and a thousand years to describe the same length of time? Do you see how that doesn't work? Now, let me tell you what I do think it is. The Jewish war, where the Roman armies destroyed the temple, took exactly three and a half years. I think it makes sense to go this destruction of the temple, which, by the way, is not some minor issue in the Bible. Jesus taught this in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. Whole sermons dedicated to the destruction of the temple. And so you've got this woman now who's going to this prepared place for three and a half years. Well, what is that? Well, I'm going to finish with this, just so you understand kind of at least what I think this is. Jesus, when he was giving the Olivet Discourse and talking about the destruction of the temple and this war where Rome would come in and annihilate Israel, he said, when you see, this is Luke 21, 21, He called those who are in Judea, when you see this happening, flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. What what basically he's saying is when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee and enter into the mountains. Now I'm gonna now this is that's biblical. Now let me just tell you something that's extra biblical and what we learn from history. Okay, so this, this is a little lower in terms of the authority. But historically, what we learn is that when Rome sacked Jerusalem, a million Jews were killed, but not one, of, not one Christian who obeyed what Jesus said and went to the hills of Pella, not one of them died. Now, again, that's... Um, That is extra-biblical. At the same time, I think it's highly significant. Now, let me say this. This is not to say that obedience always results in deliverance from human oppression. Certainly, both Scripture and history clearly indicate otherwise. But what it does do, it reveals to us that our Father in heaven and our Savior on the throne so govern human affairs that we can trust that he has searched out our path and are lying down. That he knows our days when yet they did not exist. Can you imagine? Because you know what? Everyone who went to Pella, they all eventually died. It wasn't like they weren't going to die. And some of them might have died as Christians. They might have been... But right there, they're going, I obeyed my Savior, and I realized something. My Savior, is trust- he's trustworthy. And if he's trustworthy in human things, I can trust him in eternal things as well. Well, in history, we're going to see this next time. This passage speaks of God protecting his infant church as it begins to blossom in the midst of darkness. That's what Revelation is about. It's about this church that thinks it's going to get snuffed out, and it's not. That fiery red dragon, 
knew, as we'll read, that his days were numbered. Prior to Christ, the whole world lay under his sway. He had failed against Jesus, and he was determined not to fail against the body of Christ. Yet he would fail, and he continues to fail. And what is the message? What is the so what about this for you and me? It's the recurring call to persevere, to overcome, and keep the faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would recognize the great power of our Savior, Lord Jesus, who sits at your right hand and governs the affairs of human history. Help us, Father, to be faithful even as we'll read in this passage, faithful unto death, because we recognize that death itself is a defeated enemy because of the cross of Christ. And I pray, Father, such news would compel us and inspire us to walk faithfully all the days of our life, we pray in his holy name. Amen.